Welcome to the B-Rad Podcast, where we explore ways to pursue peak performance with passion throughout life without taking ourselves too seriously. I'm Brad Kearns, New York Times bestselling author, former number three world-ranked professional triathlete, and Guinness World Record Masters athlete. I connect with experts in diet, fitness, and personal growth and deliver short breather shows where you get simple, actionable tips to improve your life right away. Let's explore beyond the hype, hacks, shortcuts, and sciency talk to laugh, have fun, and appreciate the journey. It's time to be rad. Now, how about can you do it with, you know, 5 billion people watching? That's the challenge at the end of it, and that's why... I'm so excited to introduce you to Paluva. This is a new zero-drop minimalist shoe with the distinctive five-toe design from my main man, Mark Sisson. Paluvas give you the most authentic barefoot style experience, but with sufficient cushioning so you can use them for all manner of daily movement, especially walking and many other fitness and athletic activities. Paluvas are also incredibly stylish, so you get a barefoot shoe that you're not embarrassed to wear around in daily life. It's been so cool to see the popularity of minimalist shoes grow over the recent years, but Paluvas are a step ahead of every other zero-drop wide-box shoe because of the critical feature of individual five-toe articulation, a separate slot for each of your toes. This allows for correct dynamic movement of the foot through the walking or running stride, which is impossible when your toes are encased into a single box, even a wide box. Well, you might know that minimalist shoes have faced controversy in recent years for causing injuries from inappropriate use. So here is the big picture mission. We want to get you walking in paluvas, living in your paluvas, going barefoot in your home or other safe areas as often as possible. Go ahead and use your specialized cushiony running shoes or your basketball shoes, work boots, high heels, things that you want to wear when you want to wear them, but wear your Paluvas as much as possible to reawaken the natural functionality of the human foot to stand, walk, run, and perform. Do you want to try a pair? I'm certain that when you put them on and walk around, you are going to quickly realize that these are the most comfortable, natural shoes that you've ever worn. They are designed to feel like you're, quote, walking barefoot on a putting green please visit paluva.com, that's P-E-L-U-V-A, and use the code BRADPODCAST and get 10% off your first pair. Paluvas, let your feet be feet. Hey, listeners, I'm so excited to introduce a unique and super interesting and super lively talkative guest. His name is Otto Bolden, and track and field fans will recognize him as one of the fastest humans of all time. He competed back in the 90s for Trinidad and Tobago, representing them in three Olympic Games. He has eight global medals uh, in the Atlanta Olympics. He went bronze, bronze in the 100-200. In Sydney, he went bronze, silver. He was world champion at 200 meters, so competing at the highest level, running some of the fastest times in human history. And what's really cool about Otto is after he retired from elite competition, he transitioned into an amazing and lengthy career in the broadcast booth where his performances are certainly rivaling what he did on the track. 
He has been the lead broadcaster for NBC Track and Field for 17 years and every broadcast. He is full of energy, excitement, true, honest enthusiasm, and has tremendous knowledge about all aspects of track and field that he shares in a beautiful manner with the audience. I'm not kidding when I consider him to be the single best commentator in the world in any sport. So even if you're not a huge track and field fan and you tune in to listen to Otto throw down his unique style, you are going to enjoy the broadcast tremendously. Uh, I was attending the uh, track and field meet in Eugene, Oregon, the Diamond League Finals, one of the greatest track and track meets ever. And uh, who do I bump into on our airplane flight but the man himself? So I am so excited to get him on this podcast and talk about his journey as a kid growing up in Trinidad and Tobago and then moving uh, to New York and then later California in high school and excelling in sprinting, but certainly not a world beater uh, as a youth. But he continued to develop. He went over to UCLA. He had a sensational career where he never lost a race to another collegiate athlete. That put him right on the center stage after graduation to his wonderful career on the world stage. It was cut short a little bit early by injury and a terrible automobile accident. Uh, but what's nice is how Otto transitioned into his career as announcer. So he's just going to take us through this really interesting story of uh, how athletes can you know, uh, compete at the highest level, what it's like to be an elite track and field athlete and the economic circumstances and the challenges of being in an individual sport and then transitioning over into the broadcast booth and all the preparation and focus and background research that goes into being a great broadcaster. Um, so, you know, traveling the circuit and, and being around it and being a coach of uh, numerous elite athletes and including a lot of NFL players, which you'll talk about a little bit, um, Otto really connects well with the athletes and it shows in his broadcast. I think you're going to get some interesting insights out of this. So, on your marks, get set, go with Otto Bolden. Otto Bolden, I'm so glad to catch up with you. Thank you so much for coming on the B-Rad podcast, man. You're a busy guy. My pleasure to be here. Good thing you caught me in the off-season. That's right. Uh, your schedule is incredible, and it's been so dating all the way back to your days as an athlete, and I think you've made such a beautiful transition uh, to become an announcer. And I've heard you talk uh, before about how your your passion is for promoting track and field. And of course, when you're an elite athlete and a world champion, you're doing that on a global stage. But now you've been able to do this for years and years. So um, luckily, with my, my tooth pulled today, I might have a little bit of trouble talking, but I have a very <laughs> good guess for that reason, because I know we can wind this guy up. Anyone who's seen NBC Sports can dope, but I'd really love to have you take us through your career as a sprinter, starting in uh, Trinidad and Tobago, and then you came to America. You had an amazing career at UCLA. You went pro, and uh, we'll take it all the way up to that that uh, graceful transition into the announcing booth. Well, let's let me let me start first by correcting you a little bit. Trinidad and Tobago. So that oh, excuse we me. We don't offend our uh, my uh, my my twin twin island sister. Um, the what you know, I what's funny is that if if you would have told people that I grew up with in Trinidad. Yeah, you know, by the time I come back here in 97, which is nine years, uh, yeah, nine years after I left, that I was going to be the country's first world champion, they would have probably have you, they'd have probably had you fitted for some sort of straitjacket. Um, I had run with very little success back home, but 
it was really when I'm, I always say my athletic gifts came late and they did. I was, I was a, I was an undersized kid for a long time, maybe until I got to about 15, 16, I moved to New York. I'm playing soccer and, and get discovered by, by Joseph Trupiano in, uh, in Queens, New York. I had always felt like I had the will here to be great, but my body hadn't caught up with my ambition just yet. So I go to New York, I'm playing soccer at a, at a pretty, pretty good level there. High school soccer in New York is not bad. There's a lot of, um, immigrant kids. So that, that, that certainly raises the, uh, the, uh, the, the level of play because you have a lot of, a lot of great kids coming from the islands and sort of meshing with the ones who were already here. Um, but once I sort of discovered that I was any good uh, in, in, in 1990, <laughs> that was it. In two years, I was in the Olympics. Um, and it wasn't that I was great early. I was good. 90, I was good. I was what, third in the state of New York in the, uh, in the, in the, in the 100, uh, 200, excuse me. And then um, by the next year, I was third in the state of California, which that's a, <laughs> that's a big difference. Um, I had moved out to California and then, um, you know, to UCLA and, and, and the rest as they say is history. But I, I, I think the, um, my, my, my passion for track and field is in part because of how global it is. I think as somebody who was an, uh, an immigrant and discovered the, the, the sport here, I think it sort of harkened back to, yeah, there's a big wide world out there. I mean, I, I love NFL football as much as anybody else. Go Niners, undefeated, 5-0. and um, <laughs> But nothing, nothing tugs at my heartstrings more than uh, more than track and field. I think in part because I know what it can mean. I mean, look at a look at a look at a country like Barbados, right? Barbados is just to the north and east of of Trinidad and Tobago. They have a young lady called Shade Williams who now has won two consecutive four hundred meter hurdle, uh, two hundred. Two consecutive 400 meter medals um, at the world championships. They are her country's first two medals ever. They're gonna write textbooks about her, and 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 you know, oh, well, it's only no. It's like she went from very very good junior athlete to you know where she is now, and it's like I always kind of had this sense of being able to represent my country, um, and I think that's what kept me in it because it wasn't always easy, particularly making that transition from from world junior champion to who are you at you know in the pro ranks that's an interesting comment about your childhood that you you didn't have immediate success because there's a common notion that when you are looking at the profound genetic gifts required to have that potential to to one day be world champion i would assume on the playground when you're seven or eight or 12 that you're torching everyone uh, you know, without the training or the coaching or the components that come in later to get you down from, you know, the raw gifts that you see. Um, what's the, the the story, the tale of two high jumpers that David Epstein tells um, uh, Donald Thomas, where they, they took him off the basketball court, right. took him out to the track in his high tops, and he jumps seven feet the first time he sees a bar. You would assume that's certainly the case for a 100-meter sprinter, if, if no other athlete. You would, if you saw the hill on which I grew up, um, <laughs> which, which, which seems like as steep a hill as, as, as anybody grew up on, you would think, okay, so there's some conditioning here. Um, I used to run up and down that hill as though it was flat and I go back there now. I mean, 
I am 50 this year. But <laughs> I go back there now and I go, geez. I mean, not run up at 20, 30, 40%. It was a flat out spread. And I think to myself, how many times did you run up this mm. very long, very steep hill? As it, it's almost like you see those goats that are born on the side of a cliff. And you're holding your breath because you go, huh? But to the goat, that's the only life it knows. Mm. So I, you know, I feel like I was being conditioned to potentially be this great athlete one day because it was in there. But like I said, I had to wait because it was, I mean, I think it's read across some old video the other day where I was sort of fooling around with a camcorder the last day of my senior year. And I stepped on the scale. I think I can, what I can make out is that it says 160. Mm. It means I graduated high school at about 5'8", 160. So I was, I was pretty small, mm. but the, but but to go back to, to sort of your point, it's not like there weren't flashes of it. I remember a neighbor coming to my father and saying, um, your son has the potential to be a world-beating sprinter. And my father mm. took his head back and laughed like, ah! <laughs> like, there's no way, dude. Like, what, like, I want some of what you've been drinking this morning. And, of course, you know, uh, Andre Walker, my uh, my my ex-neighbor in Trinidad, he, you know, he just tells the tale. And he tells anybody who will listen, it's like, I saw that first because he looked out of his window. Must have been doing something sick. And he looks outside and he goes, look at this little kid just <laughs> Now, mind you, it didn't, maybe it didn't look like, you know, the, the fastest man in the world yet. But he clearly, he had some track and field background. He looked out of his window and said, look at this kid just, and I was playing soccer. I was just, you mm-hmm. know, like just having a little, what we call small goal in the Caribbean. We just set up, you know, the little, the little mm-hmm. goals on each side and every, we get a little ball. And sometimes it's a tennis ball, depending on, um, mm-hmm. on what we have. And um, he just saw me going back and forth, up and down and thought, ooh, yeah, there, there is something that I am seeing. I don't know what it is. Yeah. And my dad, my dad thought that was hilarious. Of course, you know, we, we have both lived to, uh, to sort of mm-hmm. mock my father for not for not believing in me uh, immediately. Jumping on the train. If he were yeah. a typical overbearing uh, USA parent, they they would have uh, you know signed you up right away and sent you off yeah. to IMG Academy or something. Whatever's the opposite of that, that's what my yeah. dad is. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, clearly there's a genetic gateway to even dream of racing at NCAA Division One level or international level. Um, and do you feel like there's a large number of kids that, perhaps have that potential, but of course they never express it. They get diverged to other sports. Or do you do you really think, wait a second, if you want to break ten zero zero, we're talking about you gotta bring so much to the to the first day of the track practice that um, most people are gonna get get lifted out. Yeah, I think that that's not something that people are comfortable especially not in twenty twenty three. I don't know that people are comfortable saying, look, as my old coach used to say. There's a reason why there's 100,000 seats in the stands and eight lanes. That tells you, <laughs> that tells you where, like, those people that make that final, and this is not just in the 100, but obviously the 100 is, is so specific an event that, yes, um, in, in his words as well, you are not getting a Clydesdale or a donkey to win the Kentucky Derby. So, yes, there is an element of, 
are it is it is born within you and and for people like me i can look at a young child um you know 8 9 10 11 12 13 and tell the parent there's something there if mm. if you want to oh yeah oh yeah there's a there's a i got into coaching um the last 8 years or so because of that sort of frustration of wow they don't even know what they don't even know what he or she is Mm. And I can see it. And if that, you know, if that kid gets developed the right way, the the, the sky's the limit. So yeah, um, there is a huge genetic component. There is a huge, um, but I also think it's genetics plus other factors. Um, mm. I, I talked about me, you know, growing up on a on a on a hill. I I can I when I, even even at five eight one sixty, as I said in high school, I could dunk a basketball. Um, mm. Pretty comfortably. I didn't even I didn't know I could. It took mm. me moving to a new high school and kind of getting challenged by all the guys who were sick of, you know, like you know how high school is. The girls were like, oh my God, there's this new guy and he's got this accent. He's from like the Caribbean. He's like the fastest thing ever. And these guys were like, they had had enough of hearing <laughs> my name. And I I am not a basketball player and I was huh been in in you know, I must have been in gym class something like ah you know bet you can't dunk and I was like ooh and I grabbed what that is dunking I, like, <laughs> I listen I I have seen I saw that basketball hoop as recently as last week when I was in San Jose because I, I went by my high school and I went and I looked and I thought mm, it probably luckily for me it probably was not 10 feet I if I'm looking I'm looking at it last week and I thought you know this thing's probably been refurbished you know, a hundred times since then, but it's pretty, if I had to guess on that day that I dunked my first time, it was probably nine foot 10, which, and the, and the extra two inches is probably what saved me. Oh, mercy. So you, uh, got to UCLA, you had somewhat of a cred cause you're third in the state. So you were a recruit, you're looking for, uh, wonderful things to happen. I'm sure you were pretty focused and motivated by that time. You have a great program with great coaching. Uh, it worked out well for you. And maybe you could describe some of that journey. And then also, uh, when we have a chance, because I know we can fill your brain with a lot of things, you're used to multitasking on the air. Um, yeah. Here's this amazing phenomenon down in the Caribbean, where the athletes are developed home homegrown, and they pretty much dominate in terms of population comparison. And so I wonder what would have happened to the Otto that perhaps stayed on the islands through those formative years as an athlete. Um, well, the first thing is that I didn't go directly to UCLA. I actually went to uh, San Jose City College first, and there's a great sort of lesson slash story in that, but I'll, I'll try to keep it brief. Bottom line is I got very big for my britches my senior year of high school. Hey man, third in the states, no joke, people. When, yeah, but it wasn't look even at just the... it wasn't even just because of that. I was living with my uncle at the time, mm. who was like very well to do bachelor, and I had sort of fallen into his lifestyle and forgotten that I was a, a you know a, a high school senior, and and at the time I was actually supposed to go to uh, to USC, God forbid, and um, and USC, I don't remember UCLA calling my mother and they were like, there must have been a death in the family or something. Cause we've ne never seen somebody's GPA fall off this, this hard. Um, I had good SATs. I think it was like 
1,200 SAT scores, 1,270. Mm. Back when it was out of, out of 1,600. Mm. So it wasn't that, but they were really concerned. They were like, but I just, I just couldn't be bothered. It was like, I was, I was too busy as soccer star, track star. I was, I was too busy. And um, and USC made me, um, at, they made me go to um, the junior college. And then I, and then the, the riots happened. And my mother was like, nope, you're not going out mm. here. So I ended up one year, ended up being two. And then by then I met John Smith at uh, at the Olympics and and ended mm. up going to um to, to 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 UCLA, but it's a good story because it it's sort of my lose focus, get a little bit get a little bit too cocky, a little bit too confident in life, kind of smacking me back uh, smacking me back down. It's actually the best thing that could have happened to me um, in in retrospect because I needed that um, at that time. But by the time I get to um, by the time I get to UCLA, though, I am so prepared. I I don't lose uh, in 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 my junior and senior seasons at UCLA. I don't lose a single race to a collegian in anything. Um, I think I took a loss to Mike Marsh, who was a pro at Mount Sac my junior year. I got him back. Got him back the next year with with the uh, the Mount Sac Mount Sac relays record. By some miracle, I still have that <laughs> that that meet wow. record. It's probably one of the last three or four meet records I have, but yeah, no. By the time I get to UCLA, I then I'm laser focused. Mm-hmm. I've already been to the Olympics. There's the Olympics coming up in '96, which I know dang well. I can I can be a factor in, and and the the pairing of me and John Smith. John is a very technical, very cerebral kind of coach that fits in directly in line with the way I want to be coached and and the mm-hmm. way I am best coach. I think. And uh, and the partnership results in collegiate records, school records that still stand 20, ooh, 27 years later. Oh, yeah. They're carved. You, you see the, the carvings up on and top of the Pac-12 stadium. Records, like, wait, the Pac-12 records are really not going anywhere now because yeah. that conference is about to dissolve. Oh, my goodness. Oh, gosh. Don't get it. Even, even though, in fairness, Andre DeGrasse got some. Got, I, think, I think he got the 100 record oh. um, for the Pac-12. Well, it was a good it was a good run, so to speak, for the Pac-12 in track and well, field, yeah, especially. I, I just I can't even fathom in my mind not having that conference around. But yeah, you know, a lot lot of things that we saw for years. You know, their their football games starting at you know 11 p.m. Eastern sometimes, uh, sometimes later. It's like the country doesn't, you know, that that network was always going. That I've worked for Pac-12 Network um, uh, on many occasions. I've done many Pac-12 championships, but it's it's. It's really a function of the geography too that has that has sort of killed off that conference. If you'd have told me thirty years mm-hmm. ago that there's going to be a in your lifetime this conference will essentially dissolve, dissolve, I'd have said no freaking way. Yeah. Well, the money comes in, and anything can happen. So you had this great career at UCLA. Your position for the next Olympics, where you you got onto the podium and and really took off. But behind the scenes. I'm not sure if a lot of fans are um, aware of how difficult it is to make a career as a professional track and field athlete, individual sport. You're not signing with the track and field 49ers. You're just auto <laughs> on a bunch of races in college. So how does that transition, how did it work for you? Um, John Smith was coaching at UCLA, and then he was also coaching the the group that you joined. Or How does it yes. work once you, once you uh, move past the college ranks? Well, my junior year at UCLA, I got a bronze, which was my country's first medal um, at the World Championships of any color. And then it was also 
the it made me the youngest at the time um person youngest man to medal in the hundred at world so i was on a lot of shoe companies radar um Dang, too bad it wasn't uh, during the NAL days or you would have been all styling on campus, man. I had a conversation yesterday with Asante Samuel, the great uh, former NFL quarter, mm. uh, cornerback that lives down here now. Um, his daughter is a, is a hurdle and sprint phenom. Mm. And uh, we were saying the same thing. We were like, man, what would we have done in, you know, in the era of NILs? Um, but no, I... <laughs> I I had done, I had, because I had, because I had had that bronze already the next year, you know, breaking the collegiate record, running the fastest time in the world to win the NCAAs and all that stuff. Somebody was going to sign me. It initially looked like Nike. And then, um, I ended up signing with Reebok. Um, I think I signed for like, like 150 grand a, a year at the time. That was like, what? That was mind blowing money. Um, now, if you were if you are a college phenom, you could come out of uh, you could come out of university and get signed for almost a million if you're in a red event. Hundred meter sprinter, absolutely, you, you'd be you'd be pushing a million. That's that's how much the um, the sport has changed, plus inflation um, from from my era un, uh, until now. So, no, I would have been. I mean, in the way that John Godina, my teammate, would have been the number one pick the the year before in '95. He was. Uh, world champion he had broke the collegiate record just like me um i was that number one pick coming out in 96 there was no track athlete coming out that year that you would could have pointed to and said you know this is somebody who would have been more in demand but um yeah i i couldn't wait got to the olympics um got my two bronzes really blew the hundred the hundred should have been silver at worst mm. um the the 200 the, i always say it's the most satisfying race um of my career because I wasn't finishing any higher than I did that night, mm. not beating 1932. And my, mm. remember, I was a senior in high in. Uh, oh wow! University. People forget that. Yeah. Yes, I got the bronze in in Atlanta. I was a senior in uh, in college at that time. You don't see a lot of college seniors getting sprint medals, um, at that age. So I, I I say that's that's my um, the 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 medal I'm most comfortable with because I wasn't beating Michael that year mm. <laughs> that night. Mm-hmm. And I was not beating Frankie Fredericks. Both of those guys, I had looked up to them for all this time because they were, you know, they're about 10 years older than I am. And then here I was in a race with them. I knew nobody else would would beat me. And and God knows I was gonna give it my all and it was a personal best at the time. I think it's still the fastest I ever ran around a turn. Mm. But um, yeah, I wasn't beating those guys that night. So that's the one medal of the four Olympic medals that I have. That's the one I look at and I go, yeah. That's the one that you, that's exactly, you finished where you were seated. The other ones, you know, we can talk about, you know, um, maybe you could have run a little better, but, um, for that night, I wasn't, I wasn't, wasn't getting any higher than third that night. You know, that's a really beautiful attitude. I think I'm going to, uh, jump in here where we're going to keep going with the storyline, but, you know, as a commentator and part of the production, it feels to me like this, especially with uh, the USA mentality, you know, our obsession with the gold medals and is Simone Biles going to get a bunch of more gold medals and Michael Phelps going to get his 23rd and 24th gold medal. But here's your story of like the most tremendous satisfaction of competing at the highest level against the greatest athletes that you looked up to. And, you know, to go home with the biggest smile with a bronze medal, I feel like it should be highlighted more because sometimes people are, 
you know, coming through injuries and difficult times in their career. They want to give up. Uh, a lot of times track and field athletes, they aren't making the, the excellent income that the people at the very top make. And they come back and get fifth in the in the worlds and, and no one even pays attention. But it's it's beautiful accomplishments all over the place. Yeah, I think there was a part of me that always looked at the Olympics. And this is not a knock on NBC or ABC or whoever was was covering the Olympics at the time. Um, I would I could never have known before I got into the sport, into any Olympic sport, I happened to be in track and field, how difficult it is to stand on that podium. And I think that somehow there's some disconnect with an American audience where they feel like, well, you know, Simone Biles, she came out of the womb and she had this gift and she's been mm. doing fetus. She's been doing push-ups since she was a fetus and she's just better than everybody else. And she, it's like, oh, no, 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 no. So that's my job. My job, and I think that's why I stay on a track almost every day if I could. I have to always remind myself, look, the person who's getting fifth, sixth, seventh in an Olympic final, in any Olympic final, is doing the same work, is busting their behinds, is crying, bleeding, sweating every day until this night, and maybe something doesn't go right, or who knows what happens. But you have to find a way to sort of give credit and honor everybody. Yes, of course, you, we have to tell stories and 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 the gold medalist story is usually the one that you're gonna feature. But I'm telling you, man, this. I mean, we've had a guy like Karani James, for example. And Karani James, his coach literally passes away this year. Mm. Uh, Harvey Glantz, at practice coaching him. Mm. The last thing he does was, you know, start Karani on his on his last run. He collapses. He never recovers. You try to tell me if that guy goes to Worlds and he gets a bronze or he gets fourth, that that's not going to... Of course it's going to come up. That's part of what sports is. That's what we celebrate. We celebrate, you know, the night that Brett Favre had that great game and his father had died and the Jordan flu game. Sports is about overcoming the stuff that life throws at us. So mm. I'd like to think that when I got there, I, I mean, yes, we celebrate our, our, our medalists and certainly our gold medalists, but we continue to remind the audience, this is not easy. This is not, you don't fall out of bed and do this at, at, at this level. It requires a, a, a dedication and a, and a commitment and a focus that, that really is the best of what humans can do. Mm. I remember watching Usain Bolt uh, false start in uh, what's the debut, and twenty eleven like, South Korea here comes another gold baby. Let's see if he can break the record. And then you you uh, everyone slapped in the face, going, "Oh, this is a game of precision." And no, he cannot sit in the blocks for a half second to be safe and then beat everybody. He's going to get sixth if he does that. Oh, it's yeah, it's heavy heavy stakes up there, man. Okay, yeah, so and the thing is, and the things that everybody's watching you—that's that's what everybody yeah. forgets. It's like, yeah. Yeah, it's one, it's one thing if you're gonna, you know, attempt something in your office, and if you don't do it well, you look left <laughs> and right, and nobody saw that. Yeah, how about can you do it with you know five billion people watching? That's the challenge of the Olympics, and that's why when people with Olympic credentials walk in the room, people almost genuflect. I have been in a room with a guy like. Alberto Wantarena. Now I'm now I'm talking with 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 our era, right? Mm -hmm. um, Alberto Wantarena for your listeners gets 
the double in the Olympics in 76, the 400 and the 800, and the 800 was first. Do you understand mm. what that? So that was, that's, that's almost, that's almost six, uh, that's almost 50 years ago. Wow. You, I'm telling you when a man walks into a room, people almost genuflect, almost. That's how revered that sort of, a, of an accomplishment is. Not to mention his times, which would still get him on the podium That's in the Olympics right. or World Championships in both events. Incredible. I'm glad you completed that 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 thought because that's the more impressive thing. It's, it's like a low-altitude world record at the time in the Ugh. war. And I think the 800 was like 143. It's nuts. And I and I think there were four rounds in both back then. That, it's just, it's like... So, yeah, just we're, we're going back in time all that way and and back to your uh career pattern which was now a generation ago um unlike some other sports where the um you know the competition has escalated like crazy i would even argue the nfl when you look at these guys 20 years ago um to now the level of athleticism um but what's your what's your observation there where we're looking at um, you know, Bolt's time is now, what, 15 years old? Is it going to hold another 15, 20, 30 years? Um, we have the high jump from Costa Dinova that's held for, what, 40 years or something? Um, and what about that um, progression or lack thereof in, in the various events? Well, I think in part because I never got to play football. I am part of um, a company called Test Football, which has about... Oh. I think as we speak about 70 NFL clients. So I have seen the NFL guys improve in my 15 years now in the, uh, in the business. Cause you know, I see the linebackers that are like four, four low now. And I go, yeah, that's why I didn't play football. Cause I don't want him. Like I look at Fred Warner and I go, yeah, I don't have or Dre Greenlaw. And I went, I don't ever want somebody that size and that speed hitting me. I think similarly, just because of the advan the advancements in training and knowledge and, and technology, I mean, these guys do stuff in training that I go, oh, yeah, well, I, I would have loved to have done that. Mm. Um, what's moving our sport ahead really quickly, I think, is the shoe technology, though. Because mm. since the advent, I mean, certainly in the distances where it seems like there's a marathon world record every week, uh, and a distance world record every month. There's um, a girl running uh, Olympic trials, USA Olympic men's trials qualifying time in the marathon now in this right, issues. Crazy, right? I mean, yeah. Faith Kipyegon's time is faster than uh, than the winning time in in the 1500 in uh, in Rio. Well, um, yeah, is that yeah, right? It's just yeah. this this now the sprints have have gone forward too, but I think if anything, it's testament to how good. Um, Bolt was that even with the advent of of all this shoe technology, that hundred unchallenged. Now, the two hundred, I think, is not going. I think the two hundred is going to go first because in Noah Lyles, he's already run thirty one. He's within twelve hundredths of a second. Um, I think maybe, which is funny because at the time I thought those were the ones that were going to last longer. And now I look and I go, well, you know, it is harder to refine a pen than a tractor, right? <laughs> so it, it makes sense that the 200 is the one, um, both on the women's and the men's side, that is getting approached. Meanwhile, the 100, not not as much, certainly on the men's side. I think Bolt's going to lose that 
200 meter record in the next 15 years. The 100, we'll see. Because 958, that is going to take a special human being. I do not think Noah Lyles has another. I mean, he's 98 now, 98 low still. I don't know if he has another three tenths, two and a half tenths in him, I think. But I look at that 200 and I go, hmm, Noah can go faster. There's no question. To Bogo, who got silver at Worlds, who is younger than Noah, a lot younger, can go faster. Hey, ladies. You may have heard me talk about Gaines Wave treatment for improving male penile vascular health and sexual function, and maybe you thought, hey, what about my needs? Well, Gaines Wave has got you covered with a revolutionary new treatment protocol called Gaines Wave for Her. As with the male Gaines Wave treatment, a skilled practitioner uses a handheld device to send low-intensity shock waves into your vaginal area to stimulate a healing response, promote increased blood circulation, and the growth of new blood vessels. After a series of 6 to 12 very brief treatments, which are painless but extremely effective, you get real results with Gaines Wave reporting an 80% success rate. Some benefits... You will revitalize your intimate relationships with heightened sensation and arousal and enhance pleasure and satisfaction. Don't contemplate invasive procedures or uncomfortable medical treatments. Regain confidence and reclaim your sexuality with Gaines Wave for her. You visit the website gainswave.com, G-A-I-N-S-W-A-V-E.com slash Brad to find a practitioner in your area. You complete a series of treatments and the beneficial effects will last for a long time, especially if you eat and exercise well to promote overall vascular health. It's a tune-up for your equipment. So please visit gainswave.com slash Brad to find a practitioner in your area and take advantage of my special promo that you'll mention when you find your local practitioner. Buy six treatments and get one free. Um, uh, Arian Knighton, the, the U.S. phenom who's already run 19-4, he can go faster. Um, so there's an, enough young talent in that event where I think um, the 200 men's world record will go before the 100. Uh, so speaking of bold, um, the transcendent athlete, mostly we immediately see his height, uh, but I, I, I feel like you're going to tell me there's a lot more to it than just being tall. And one of the things I want to ask you about specifically is this characterization that he was lazy in workouts and had to get goaded to complete the whole workout. And I reflect on that, especially coming from the, the triathlon scene where we overtrained like crazy and, and the people who got a little bit smarter and learned how to rest a little bit would rise up rather than, you know, just keep banging your head against the wall. Maybe that was a positive attribute where um, the, 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 the highest progression or the evolution of athletic training is the guy who's dancing in the clubs in the off season to help recalibrate from that intensity of, of working so hard when it's time to peak for a major meet. I've had enough um, enough conversations. He and I, for some reason, have just ended up in extended, um, in places where we are not separated for extended periods of time. Airport lounges, um, aircraft uh, adjacent seats. So I have talked to him enough. The last time I sat next to him for an extended time, we were both on the same flight going into Worlds last year in Eugene. And I look, I can, I certainly was not a coach of, of his, um, 
of, of his sort of level, but I, you know, I, I have a couple of world titles of my own, um, albeit juniors. I think I sifted through what he said and what he wanted to say to me enough to know this. Look, Usain Bolt is an incredibly gifted athlete. The guys who do that kind of stuff for a living in terms of technique and, 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 you know, stride length and stride frequency and all that stuff say he's the best ever like mm. born onto this earth genetic freak um but his coach essentially would would tell you and and told me he was it, it's it, you it was a question yes he loved the party that's not that doesn't make him uncommon as a young jamaican male um yes he loved the party yes he loved nightlife and all that but he said he worked very hard you, there's no way you don't uh, and get those kinds of results. He just, I think, would like to have seen him string together more years of consistent training and maybe listen to him a little bit more in terms of how to attack that 200. He felt like he should have been either 19-1 low or maybe 19-0 hmm. um, if he'd have done it his way. And he hmm. feels like the reason why people are getting close is because... Um, Maybe Usain did it more the Usain way than than the Glenn Mills way, but um, I consider myself fortunate just for my my own track and field loving eyes as well as for my career that I got to um, that got I got to be around for his career because I got to see things that I as a sprinter only dreamed about it, you know, at a pro um, at pro dimensions of five nine one seventy five. To see a guy that hype, and 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 I know a lot of people go, oh yeah, well he's tall. There's not a lot of tall guys that have run those sorts of times. His genetic gift is, he has that height. He's six five, but he has the ability to turn over that big wheel with the speed of somebody my height. So mm -hmm. you know, you know, proud Mary, big wheel, keep on turning. When that, when a big wheel is turning, it is going to consume lots of ground. It's going to swallow ground with each revolution. You combine that with the ability to turn that wheel over very quickly, and you have 1919 and 1958 and, and the way that he revolutionized um, both of those events. So that's the way I try to describe it for, for people who are not as as into all the, the, the minutia of sprinting as I am. Uh, but the, the, the technique at, at, the, at the highest level is so crucial and there's so much behind that where you're not really getting in the blocks and going a hundred percent and fighting to the finish. So maybe you could talk a little about that and how you and John Smith and the rest of your group there in Los Angeles were, you know, became the, the ultimate technicians, um, helped, helped kind of evolve things like the drive phase and, um, all, all this terminology that you, you cough up during the, um, during the meets, which are so important to understand that, you know, it's not guys just racing each other to the to the ice cream truck. It's uh, very nuanced. Yeah. Um. If you look at like early Santa Monica in the in the uh, mid to late eighties, you can see elements of it. They were not. They did not have their eyes fixed on the finish line in the hundred in the first maybe two, three, four steps. Um, my coach was around that because he was a coach um, at Santa Monica, and then he sort of break, broke off and did his own thing. And I remember my junior year, we were working on this thing called Seven Steps, and it was 
that you were going to stay. And I remember, you know, him giving me the examples, your car stalls on the, on the freeway and you have to push it. Think of the angle that you want to push it from. And that's the angle we're going to push from. And that, mm. that made it very relatable to all of us, um, in terms of, you know, how you would, how you would approach that, that angle, that relative angle. Um, and I think I, I was, I was really the beneficiary of myself and Maurice. I think it's why we had such good drive phases is because we came to John right when he had to figure that out. And because he had to figure it out at a very preliminary stage, he was able to, to sort of teach us as he was learning it. So 95, I look, I look back at like my pack 10 back then championships and yeah, I'm, I look different to everybody else in the race. Everybody else is just kind of standing mm. straight up as everybody else would do back then. And you can see me doing my seven steps. By the next year, it's turned into this thing called the drive phase, which, of course, everybody in track and field knows what that is now. And they know what it looks like. But we were working on it back then and working on maybe extending it out a little further. And it, it's so funny to me to go all over the world now and watch people do that technique. And I, I look sometimes and just to myself, I go, look at this thing that we were literally at UCLA piecing together. I, I guess this is how Dick Fosbury used to feel. Mm where he goes, look at the rest of the planet doing this thing that I conceived in my head or that I, that I perfected in my head. That's how it feels for me when I see people. Um, like when I watch Christian Coleman, I go, geez, like, like that is the evolution of whatever it is we thought we were trying to do huh. um, 30 years ago because he has such a, a, a phenomenal start. But yeah, it was exciting to be, you know, around this culture was, he was literally changing the, changing the event forever. So you had this wonderful run at the top, eight global medals, your peak years on the circuit. And then I think um, you had some misfortune, uh, injuries, uh, automobile accident, and you, um, may maybe it was an early end. You can talk about that, but then tell us how the kind of the, your career uh, wrapped up and transitioned. Yeah, by old two, so now I am what, 29. Um, in O2, I have a, a drunk driver hits me head, head on in Trinidad. And that is effectively the end of my career, even though I don't retire for another, I don't know, 16 months. Um, but before that, in 99, I was injured. Uh, I had a hamstring injury and I could not, um, I could not compete at the Seville World Championships that year. Maurice Green would win the 100 and the 200 that meet. But my broadcast career effectively uh, started there. I wanted to, you know, sit at home and feel sorry for myself in Los mm -hmm. Angeles. My manager said, "Hell no! You will, you will pack several suits and you will come here." You know how when we go to the the, the fights in Vegas, how all the fighters are there. Well, this is a world championship. You mm -hmm. will come, and I, I was like, Ugh. got on the plane very reluctantly, and the BBC said, um, "Oh, he's here. He's obviously not running. Does he want to come sit in?" It's funny because somebody made me look up that um, the reviews from that show and the review literally says that the coverage has been otherwise, uh, you know, not noteworthy except for this this kid that they brought on. I thought, wow, I've never seen that. It, and now I'm 20 years into my own uh, broadcast career. So I went on the BBC and and the reviews were good. And, and, you know, that's not a bad thing to be able to put at the top of your resume once you, you know, once I retire. So. Um, got injured in 02 and then by 04, um, I got my four by one team to the finals of the Olympics and I said, yep, that's it. I'm 30. Mm. 
I'm out. And everybody said, oh, please, you'll be back next. And I went, nope, I'm done. Um, I didn't like being injured all the time. And, and mm. post-accident, I was never the same. Every time I'd get the top end speed, something would something would feel like it's it's coming undone. It, you know, the, the leg never healed right. It, it was twisted. It, I, I, I don't know. But whatever, I, I know for sure that on that day in July in 02, that was the end of my career. I didn't figure mm. it out until, um, as I said, 16 months later. So, yeah, I walked away. And um, didn't know what the heck I was going to do. Um, got into politics um, the year after. I was a senator very briefly. And then when uh, when CBS came calling to uh, to do the NCAAs that year from, I believe, Sacramento in 05, that was it. I was, I was in. Um, I bothered NBC for about two more years. And they, um, I don't know if at the time they thought they were going to hire me or not, but they were very content to let CBS groom me. Um, and I started to do some ESPN stuff at the time too, just here and there. And then in 07, NBC came calling and, um, my first Olympics was 08. The rest is history. Well, so you had a bit of a break. You got on the air in Seville to, to great reviews. Uh, and then you tried to uh, race for a few more years, uh, get yeah. involved in politics. Were you doing any commentating or practicing at home during that time? Nope. Oh, so... Wow. So in 90, yeah, so in 99, just for that, you know, that week they had me and I wasn't calling races. And I, I know that um, sometimes to the lay person, it seems like the same thing. The people who the, there is one level of the sport where, you know, I'm in the studio and I say, yeah, I think the 49ers are going to win today mm. because they're playing blah, blah, blah. That is one level of broadcasting. In sports. Mm. The top level is what Troy Aikman does. It's what. Tony Romo does. It's what I do. There's a difference between that and actually calling again. The preparation is completely different. Mm. It's in a studio. You don't have to have to prep the same way. So yeah, it, between 99 and 05, I did a little bit of, because what I, I remember what happened is that in, in 2000, for example, the BBC covers the Olympic trials for the U.S. So I remember being in Sacramento. I actually interviewed Marion Jones in Sacramento in, uh, in, in, at, at the Olympic trials in, in 2008. Um, I also remember, uh, excuse me, in, in 2004, uh, excuse me, 2000. Yeah. Cause it would have been the, the year after Seville. So it was 2000 Olympics. Um, I remember interviewing Marion Jones in, uh, in 2000 before the, the whole drive for five, before that whole thing fell apart. So, um, yeah, I had, I had, but it was like, I was doing one thing a year, two things a year. It wasn't mm. like I had, you know, I was, I was churning them out. So, and then even when I was doing the NCAAs, 05 and 06, that was one meet a year. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like I was, I was getting a lot of reps. Once NBC hires me in the summer of 07, then I'm working quite a bit. And then, of course, from 08, then I'm doing everything. So, yeah, it was it was kind of few and, and far between at the time. And that used to hurt me because I used to feel like it took me the first hour to really warm up and get back into my groove. I don't know how I did that. Not Like now I love doing the Diamond League. Because it gets me, it keeps me sharp. It's like, yeah, I remember it, it happened, you know, last Wednesday, last Friday. I can't imagine now being able, uh, having to do pro meets without like doing a meet every week. Cause it does, there is a sharpness that you keep when you broadcast, uh, you know, a, once a week, twice a week. So I guess you sort of felt like a natural when you just stepped on to the, wrapped up the, uh, put on the mic in, in 99. Uh, but when you started to see this as a viable career opportunity, 
Um, what is your what is your methodology? I mean, as a sprinter, you're going into extremely precise and, and focused preparation. Um, how does that translate over to announcing? Or are you just are you just the natural? And you uh, you you sit on the beach and then get on the plane and 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 uh, start talking about athletes. Yeah, right. Uh, I think there are. I look. I come from a family of talkers, um, the kind of guys and women, uh, my aunts, who can you can put them on a stage and they will have an audience kind of in their palm for an hour on any subject. That's the kind of family I come from. So this is not this is not something that's unique to me, and I'm always very observant of that. Having said that, though, I think your ego allows you to think that somehow you are gifted enough where everything that proceeds out of your mouth is somehow going to be relevant or interesting or necessary. So you spend the first three to four to five years, I think, of any broadcast career, and certainly I did, trying to sound like the television version of yourself, the the voice of your, the, the version of yourself that exists in your head. I think only in the last five or six years of my career have, are people getting my authentic self. And it's funny because people who have been listening for, to me for 20 years goes, man, I've never heard you like this before. It's, it, it's like, it feels like you're having fun for the first time. It feels like something's changed. And I think to myself, yeah, um, I have to credit my producer who said, I don't, I really want the version of you that maybe we get in production meetings that we get in the mm. car ride. I mean, mm. maybe without all the expletives, but, <laughs> but, but, but I, I want you to be that sort of you, you know, Uber fan, Uber knowledgeable. There's nothing that you're going to see that, that you haven't yourself been through and you can't convey to the audience. And that changed my, that changed all of how I broadcast because mm. I think that there is an element of, Oh, I mean, like, what's what am I gonna see that I can't like? And you realize, no, broadcasting, particularly in America, where you're always headed to commercial at some point. <laughs> there is, yeah, I mean, look on the BBC, you aren't going to commercial. Uh, so if you have an extended thought and it gets a little long, and you, it's fine because you're not going to commercial. You know, you have to make room for somebody else to talk. But in the, in, in the states, you're always going to commercial, and I think for that. I had I had to learn when the best thing you can say right in this moment is absolutely mm-hmm. nothing. If you'd have told me that the first year I was broke, I was like, what? No, 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 no. I have to say something here. Look, it's a big no, because your voice can't add to it. What just happened on this track, just let it breathe. Let it breathe for 30 seconds. And you tell me if that doesn't look better 15 years from now or 15 minutes from now. Mm-hmm. I had to be convinced of that because, I, again, I think a lot of very talented broadcasters get into the booth and they go, I know this sport, I've lived this sport, and there's nothing that's going to happen that I can't express. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. good. That doesn't mean that we need to hear that every... Look, I'm a, I'm a big Tony Romo fan, and I feel like that's kind of... because. Early Tony Romo, I used to enjoy on a level where I went, oh my gosh. And I'm like, oh, and he's my category at the Emmys. And he just made my category <laughs> that much harder and all of that stuff. And I feel like in the last couple of years, he's 
I'm like, no, this is not the Tony that we had before. I feel like he's gonna, I feel like he's gonna have a resurgence in his career because he's so he's such a talented broadcaster. I just feel like he's gotten off on one of these tangents that maybe I did when I was at mm. that stage in my career, and somebody's gonna like set him straight. And I've seen some of the criticism that 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 he's taken over the last, I don't know, season or two. And I go and I think, yeah, no, he, he'll be back because I think. Yeah, there's a tendency to feel like, oh yeah, I can I can go in there and just ad lib or whatever, and it's all gonna be great because it's coming out of my mouth. That's that would be a huge mistake. <laughs> well, that's really well put. I mean, you're you're you, you don't want to be putting on a show. You want to be the real you. Yes. However, you are putting on a show, and yes. you're, you're you're entertaining the audience. So you have to kind of straddle that fine line that's, that's fine really fine it's a razor's edge it's that fine now do you do like the nba referee type of um you know recap where they they um they show them every call they made and they score them on a percentage score <laughs> yeah it's it's gnarly i mean they put together a highlights tape of every time you blew the whistle and they they give you you know you have to be 86 percent or higher with your correction otherwise you go get get relegated but i wonder if you I mean, this this could be like a personal preference, but are you scrutinizing your own broadcast or have you had enough of Eugene after eight days and want to get your head clear? There's certain rules to when, um, to, to how things look on television. Sometimes things don't go well or there's a mistake that you make or somebody makes um, and, and, and you think, oh my gosh, how's this happening on live television? You go home and if it was a, in your head, it was a 10. When you actually watch it live on the air, sometimes it's a three, sometimes it's a four, it's a five. Okay. It's nev almost never, unless you mistakenly drop an F-bomb or something, it's never going to be as bad in, your, in, in real life as it was in your head. That's the first thing. Hmm. The second thing for me is that I, nobody's going to critique, look, I, <laughs> nobody's going to critique the, their, themselves um, harder than I will. Um, I don't ignore criticism there's sometimes that somebody will will somehow get a direct message to me or or some kind of comment to me and i go oh that's complete bs but there's other times where somebody goes hey your 200 meter calls you're saying the same thing for the whole meeting i go oh and you go back and i go yeah i can't and not only will i do it i will go to my colleagues in the booth and say hey we're doing this the same way every time. I really have, I've really made it a point. Don't get comfortable. Don't get enamored with your last meet. Don't get enamored with your last call so that we do not um, fall into some of, you know, some of the traps I think that a lot of broadcasters mm. um, fall into, you know, and don't get in love with the sound of your own voice. That's the number one thing. It's like, Sometimes shutting up is fine too. Well said, man. Um, you, you know, one of the things that you're, you're really commended for, and and the allure of listening to is you have that um, that high level information experience, and also the it feels like you know these athletes. I know you travel with them, spend a lot of time with them, and you, you provide that um, you know that that backroom info. Now, is that sort of a nuanced thing where you're hanging out with these people and you say, how's your training going? Well, I broke it with my boyfriend. He's been a real asshole. And so my, my training struggling and you're going to kind of try to get, have the audience get to know these people that are friends and, and personal, you know, uh, uh, 
coworkers. How do you how do you deal with that? You don't know how you don't know how dead on that question is, uh, particularly with the boyfriend thing. Um, it is a fine line. I have not always played it perfectly. I'll tell you what happens to me sometimes. I will be there's there's very little in this industry that I don't know way in advance. Coaching change, breakup because the coaches are all my friends, the agents are all my friends. And yes, I have great relationships with most of the athletes. So I get fed all this information on, especially during the season. And I have to sometimes remember, oh, this is for broadcast use. You're not supposed to know this at all. <laughs> and occasionally in the heat of the moment, um, I think is it last year? Yeah, last year. I leaked something. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a huge deal if you weren't the athlete. But essentially, I was saying, look, so and so athlete is about to switch to this event, and mm -hmm. I wasn't supposed to be out yet. It turned out being a good thing because the 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 meet promoters all went, oh my gosh, well if that's the case, then I want them in in my meet next year, blah blah blah. blah. But yes, there is a very fine line that I have to walk between what I'm supposed to know, what I can reveal. And, you know, there's the, the just the other things that I have to keep. I mean, there's certain, they're, they're big drug busts that are coming that I know months in advance. And it's like, oh. hey, if this leaks, we're coming to you because you are the only person that that knows this other than, you know, the the agent and the coach or whatever. So, yeah, it it, it is it is interesting being me sometimes because I look at my phone and I'm like, oh, yeah, you know who that is? That's. So-and-so executive from, from this shoe company asking me if, you know, what, what's sort of the, what's the barometer out there for athlete X that they're thinking of signing. Mm. Yeah, it, it is a, it's, it's sometimes very interesting to be me because of, of sort of where I, where I sit in the sport, but I don't take it for granted. And, and, and I'm glad that you think that, um, you know, I have all this knowledge. It's not because. I'm doing that like, a, you know, oh, I want to prepare because I'm an analyst. That's because I genuinely love the sport. Um, it, it's almost like the uh, the Rosie Perez character in White Men Can't Jump. Mm. That was like, I have you have to get me on Jeopardy because I have all this stuff in my head. <laughs> what am I going to do with it? I have to get on Jeopardy. It would, that's how I am with with my track and field uh, stats and, and, and knowledge and, and Olympic history. It was like, I might as well be on television because I have all of this stuff in my head from, you know, dating back to 1936 and before. So it, 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 I am lucky that I am employed, uh, in a job where I get to use all the stuff in my head. <laughs> if you weren't, you'd probably be on YouTube, uh, building the auto network and, and taking viewers away from NBC. So uh, everybody, Maybe. everybody wins here, man. Everybody Maybe. wins. Um, so what is the, the schedule like? I mean, do you have, um, you must feel like you're still an athlete heading to all these meets. Do you get butterflies before the, the cameras turn on? Is it, is it a good proxy for what you did before? Or do you just feel comfortable moving on to a whole different experience in life? Um, well, we don't, um, my generation of broadcasters is the first that we have not Look, we'll go to the Olympic trials, Olympics, the big ones, Prefontaine, right? The ones that are domestic in the United States. We don't do that Diamond League circuit anymore. Um, well, I shouldn't say, we don't do it by following the, we don't have to travel with them. 
Mm. One of one of the things that the pandemic produced is the ability to to broadcast from home. So when you hear me do uh you hear me doing a Diamond League broadcast, I am sitting oh. right where I am Wrong. right now. You're I not in brought, you're I not in Qatar. Oh my god. Nope, I'm on a VPN. I'm on a VPN back to Stanford, Connecticut, which is our headquarters, and we are broadcasting sometimes live um on like a three or five second delay. And one guy's in Eugene. And the distance analyst is in Michigan or Iowa somewhere, and I'm in Florida, and we are doing a live. The producer and everybody else is in uh, Stanford, Connecticut, and we are doing a live broadcast. So that has, I mean, that has changed my world because I used to always have to get on a plane mm-hmm. to go. At first, it was LA, and then it was Denver, and then it was uh, Stanford, Connecticut. Now. We do our production meetings on Zoom. We fire up our. Um, I just sent the equipment back uh, a couple of days ago. We uh, th- they send me a, a kit. I connect it to my router, and I'm broadcasting from home. So that part, that part has has made my life a lot easier. Mm. And you get to uh, pursue your coaching passion as well. So, right, tell and, us and about certainly yeah. in the first three months of the year when I'm you know um, that's that's my time for my my NFL to be guys. Um, yeah, it allows me to not have to leave. You know, I can I can work those guys out all day. And not that there's a lot of uh, Diamond League meets going on at that time of the year, but um, you know, you know, occasionally there's a world indoors or or something like that that I have to call. It means that I don't have to leave town, which is hmm. which is great. I've I have that's it's the greatest blessing that, that that my sport has given me. I have seen the world, man, because of. You know, there's always there's always some track meet in you know in in, in some corner of the world, but uh, I, I like being at home now. Well, yeah, you've earned some some home time, and yes. uh, there's there's no uh, no decline on the broadcast quality. So I didn't even know that was <laughs> I didn't even know that was happening. Yeah, um, Otto, I appreciate you so much on behalf of all track and field fans. Um, you're doing a great job. Keep up, keep promoting the sport. Thank you. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to seeing you out there at the meets again, or jumping on the jumping on the plane and bumping into my favorite broadcaster. Great to be on with you, man. All the best to you as well. Thank you, Otto. That's a wrap, people. Greetings, my fitness-minded listeners. I want to acquaint you with the Primal Fitness Expert Certification Program, the most comprehensive home study multimedia fitness education course in the world. If you want to enhance your personal knowledge of all aspects of leading a healthy, active, fit lifestyle, this total immersion course will be life-changing. I'm the lead instructor and author of the course, and we have 14 chapters of extensive written content with over 100 accompanying videos covering topics such as general everyday movement, including micro-workouts and dynamic workstation tips, the full experience of gym-based strength training and all the different modalities, a complete presentation on all aspects of sprinting, both running and low-impact options, an assortment of high-intensity interval training and high-intensity repeat training strategies, a detailed education on the principles and practical application of aerobic endurance training, and extensive commentary, the most you will find in any publication, on all aspects and symptoms of overtraining and burnout. We even have fascinating peripheral topics like integrating nasal diaphragmatic breathing, dynamic stretching, injury prevention, and developing a peak performance mindset. It's really something, this course. We went all out for over two years with a great team to develop this amazing home-based fitness education for you. 
And you get one-on-one expert email support and private Facebook group connection throughout your studies to ensure that you absorb everything optimally and you pass your series of exams and get certified. So go to primalhealthcoach.com slash Brad to enjoy a very special limited time. And I'm not kidding. This is a big time discount just for you. 25% off your tuition. A fantastic premium offer at primalhealthcoach.com slash Brad for the most comprehensive fitness course you can ever find. Thank you so much for listening to the BRAD podcast. We appreciate all feedback and suggestions. Email podcast at bradventures.com and visit bradkerns.com to download five free ebooks and learn some great long cuts to a longer life, how to optimize testosterone naturally, become a dark chocolate connoisseur, and transition to a barefoot and minimalist shoe lifestyle.